Well, for reasons that I already explained to all of you earlier this morning, we are going to uh, take a peek at a passage um, that I preached on the beginning of this month at uh, Cape Cod Bible Church. So I'm excited to uh, to do that with you, and you'll get a, an idea, really, of um, some of the stuff that I bring to other churches when I do go there. I pray that you'll be blessed by what you hear and by what we study this morning. Well, let me say then that there are a few Bible doctrines that I'm really passionate about. Those of you who know me well will know uh, that uh, the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is one of them. The other is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. You know, this idea of not giving up, not becoming timid about our faith. There's a great deal in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, about pressing on, fixing our eyes on the kingdom, living by faith as we endure difficulties along the straight and narrow. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, Watch yourselves, be on the alert, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24-25, Run in such a way that you may win to receive an imperishable crown. And then there's Hebrews 12, first two verses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jude tells us to contend for the faith. John says in his first epistle to let the word abide in us. In other words, live that word out. And Revelation 22.7 states that there is a blessing for those who heed the words of the prophecy of this book. And again in chapter 22, verse 11, And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now this is why the New Testament calls Christians more than conquerors, spiritual athletes, warriors, working farmers. I should say hard-working farmers. It assures us that we've not been given a spirit of timidity. Now, with regard to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, I want to say that I find this wonderful doctrine always timely. Always. You could preach this any time. Now, here's why. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 3, as you know, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. You realize, don't you, that he is talking about the church here. Verse 5 says that such people hold a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And verse 13 calls them impostors, who will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, if that's the sad condition of many churches out there in America, what about the world? Well, it's worse. I don't have to tell you just how anti-Christian our culture is. If there's one thing in our culture that's worse than a white middle-aged male, it's a white middle-aged male Christian. Judeo-Christian values on which our country was founded are repudiated in the workplace, in the public school, in universities, government, and by the media. 
Satan continues to propagate the lie that people can become their own gods and still are convincing them that God is a liar, that marriage is not between one man and one woman, and that God did not create them male and female. Now that thinking is just plain outdated and backward. I'm telling people in a postmodern America that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him, and that if they don't abandon their own way and repent and embrace your gospel, then they will be punished for eternity, that amounts to hate speech. Let's face it, it's never popular, nor has it ever been popular, to be a Christian in any civilization. It will never be. Of course, Jesus told us so in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. And he himself did not come to bring peace on earth, right? He came to bring a sword. Matthew 10, verses 35, 36, specifically say, actually, to turn a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be the members of his household. Peter tells the churches of Asia in his first epistle, in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. In all my years that I have been in ministry and practicing biblical counseling, I can tell you for sure that many in the church are surprised by the various trials that come upon them, and sadly have relaxed their witness, have slowed down in the race, have stopped fighting well. For them, putting to death the lusts of the flesh, availing themselves of the ordinary means of grace, and donning their armor is, frankly, overwhelming. So I find the doctrine of perseverance timely, but not just timely, extremely practical and necessary to get your arms around because of this powerful satanic influence that tries to bring our work for Christ to a grinding halt. I am sure I don't have to convince you of that. In just the last five years, famous Christian personalities, conference speakers, men that many of us have listened to and have admired, have either compromised the faith or left it altogether. More and more Christians come to our counseling ministry in a spiritual torpor, a state of spiritual apathy. Now, maybe you know some. And you've no doubt felt the strong temptation to relax on some of your God-given responsibilities and, and abandon others. Maybe few of you have given into it. It's easy to do in this worldly atmosphere. Christians who mean business for Christ today will be persecuted in addition to reaping the consequences of this fallen world, physical deterioration, eye, eye trouble, illness, health problems, and the foundational doctrine of demons that makes the world go round 
has found its way into the church and teaches Christians that it's okay to relax and, and even give up in certain aspects of the faith. That it's okay to give up when you're, you don't feel like pressing on for God in some area that they find difficult to handle or even depressing. Well, beloved, it's not okay. It's not okay to relax, much less abdicate any of the responsibilities that God has given you in your particular station of life. The Bible never calls us to give up, but to press on, right? Now, I'm, I'm not minimizing the realities of temptation. They are real, and they are strong. The temptation for a believer to leave his unbelieving spouse is very strong or for a believing wife to usurp the authority of her unbelieving husband, or for Christian businessmen and women to compromise their testimony because of a hostile work environment, or to make more money, or to get ahead in a company, or believing parents to raise their kids biblically because it's a lot of work. I'm not suggesting that it is easy to stay the course in the faith, to champion righteousness in those areas of our weakness. If it were, there would be no need for the New Testament to, to, to give admonitions not to lose heart. And there are plenty of them. Luke 18.1 Jesus was telling them a parable to show that all, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Hebrews 12, verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not lose heart. Now, this is only my introduction. I promise we'll get to the text. And, and maybe I've convinced you that giving up in the area of our Christian life is never warranted or God-honoring, no matter how strong the temptations are to do so. But maybe you didn't need convincing. Now, Pastor Bob, I certainly believe that. Well, great. But I've given you only half the truth. Here's the other half. When it comes to our God-given responsibilities... Christians never have the right to give up. They never have the right to give up. We've witnessed for the past several years now in our country people excusing their bad behavior by claiming that they have a right to live that way. I've no doubt that many Christians have followed suit. Certainly the younger generations who grew up hearing this and then become Christians will certainly have a tendency to bring their thinking into their faith and into the church, don't you think? Nevertheless, no believer has the right to give up on, God, on God's calling. I want to prove this to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and I'll tell you why a little bit later. The ESV, English Standard Version, says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, let's understand our terms, okay? 
tear all this up before we put it all back together and make some application. Our terms are very important. I want to begin with the phrase, lose heart. It's a figure of speech that has a rather full meaning, and it's quite similar to some of our own expressions that we use today. His heart isn't in it, we say, which means that he's lost his confidence, his interest, his, his passion for something to the point where he even stops pursuing it. We have another expression, to throw up one's hands in the air. And that's a gesture that's become associated with quitting, often acquainted with the shout, I've had it. Another expression that really comes from the boxing world is to throw in the towel. That's kind of an older one. When a trainer saw that his boxer was being beaten a little bit too much and was losing in the ring, he would throw in the white towel, which signified to the referee, that's it. We give up. The fight's over. And that's the idea behind Paul's phrase here, to lose heart. I give up. Now, I'd submit to you that if anyone ever had the right to give up on his divine calling, it would have been the Apostle Paul. There are two startling lists of hardships that Paul endured that I want to read for you. The first is in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, which we studied actually a few weeks back, so it'll be familiar to you. Paul says there, speaking of his ministry, in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, afflictions, hardships, difficulties, beatings, imprisonments, mob attacks, labors, sleeplessness, in hunger, also in glory and dishonor, evil report and good report, regarded as um, re uh, regarded but uh, as deceivers and yet true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we are alive, as punished and yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Now the implication of this passage I think is obvious. Paul's ministry was far from a walk in the park. And if there is any doubt in your mind about that, his other list of hardships in chapter 11 will settle it once and for all. It's more graphic, I warn you. Verses 23 to 29, chapter 11. Ready? I am a servant of Christ with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 49 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? And who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? In all my years of pastoral ministry, I have not met one person who endured even a quarter of the things on this list, or anything as harsh. Not one. 
That's why I say if anyone had the right to give up on his Christian responsibilities, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And there's time, there is something else that we can add to this litany of hardships. That would be his ongoing battle to defend his apostleship to the Corinthians. When I say ongoing, it lasted quite a while, resulted in this second letter, in fact. They've been duped, you see, by a small but influential band of false teachers called the Judaizers into believing that Paul was a phony. Now, maybe you don't realize just how close Paul himself came to giving up. The temptation to give up on this very church. What? Paul? Yes. Yes, in chapter 12, he admits that he got to a point where he honestly believed he could not minister to these Corinthians well enough to make a difference because of being saddled with a handicap. What was that? He called it his thorn, thorn in his side. Actually, believe the thorn refers to the ringleader of these false teachers who are making it difficult for Paul to minister in in Corinth. God taught Paul, however, that he most certainly could fulfill his calling by relying on God's grace. So Paul's uplifting and encouraging words in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4.1, our verse, on how one does not give up, are much more relatable to us because it comes at a time in his own life where anyone would expect him to walk away from such an ecclesiastical mess. But not even the great apostle had the right. He would tell the Corinthians, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And we can be sure that Paul never did throw in the towel, ever. Listen to his words in our chapter, a few verses on, verses 8 to 12. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Oh, he stayed the course right to the end. While awaiting execution, he wrote to young Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who've loved his appearing. Now, as I've said already, I know of no one who's endured as severe a context while in the thick of ministry as the Apostle Paul, and he never gave up. Yet I have met plenty of Christians who have suffered far less and have given up, either by redefining, severely curtailing, or simply walking away from their God-given responsibilities. How did Paul remain so faithful? Well, some think his apostleship had something to do with it. You know, Paul was given a a measure of something that no one else had. Well, he was an apostle. What do you expect? 
But apostleship was an office, nothing more. No, Paul was a sinner like the rest of us, and he depended upon the Holy Spirit. Besides, think about this. If he would never, if he never would have called, he never would have called Christians to imitate his faith if they couldn't because they lacked his special ability that he had as an apostle. So if it wasn't something special, some spiritual endowment that God gave only to apostles that kept Paul fast in the running, then what was it? Well, I might put it this way, and this is the crux of the message. Paul had the correct perspective of ministry. He had the correct perspective of ministry. Paul's steadfastness is a result of a perspective. That's it? Yes, in large part. And don't underestimate how vital it is to have a correct perspective when championing righteousness. Let's continue. Paul says, therefore, verse 1. Now, this is a connecting word in the New Testament. It refers us back to a truth previously taught, or it refers ahead to a truth. And in verse 1, it makes sense to see it referring to something ahead, and especially to the reason we don't lose heart. Now, that would be the ministry. We might rephrase the verse this way. It's always help, helpful to rephrase. We do, new, we do not lose heart because we have this ministry. Sometimes paraphrasing something in a question helps. Why don't we lose heart? Because we have this ministry. In other words, the basis of remaining steadfast is the ministry. Now, what does that mean exactly? To put it in very simple and, for now, general terms, Paul wants us to know that he never loses sight of the fact that he has a ministry. And at that point we ask, well, what ministry is that exactly? And the answer to that makes all the difference in the world. Some might say, well, it's his calling to preach the gospel where the gospel wasn't heard, oh, and, and to the Gentiles, and to plant churches in Gentile regions, oh, and to train men to be pastors. That was his ministry. And I would say that's mostly correct. Well, what else is there, you might be wondering. Well, there's also those other aspects of Paul's ministry that he himself mentioned in this very epistle, like a day and a night in the open sea, being stoned and left for dead, beatings with rods in constant dangers from robbers and his own countrymen always carrying around the death of Christ in his body. That part of the ministry is what Paul is really calling attention to at this point because the context specifically states that in verses 7 to 12. Paul says, look, we don't lose heart over these difficult aspects of life because they are very much a part of our ministry. Yes, we're afflicted in every way for the faith, but we're not crushed. Perplexed about it? Yes, but not driven to despair. Persecuted for our faith? Well, often, but not destroyed. 
and we get a clear view of Paul's perspective on ministry. He believed that everything he did was part of the ministry. Oh, but ship, being shipwrecked is not something that's unique to the gospel. No, but it happened while Paul was on his way to Rome to be tried because of his evangelistic endeavors. Had Paul not been converted, he wouldn't have been on the boat. And he was originally apprehended because of the disturbances from his open-air preaching in Jerusalem. And there can be no question that his proclamation of the gospel resulted in his beatings with rods, left for dead and always in danger of something. No, to Paul, his suffering and his being physically and emotionally taxed and all this dreadful stuff that we read about in chapter 11 came with his ministry. Came with it. Unless we think that hardships are not God-ordained parts of our ministry, that God works for our good, I might remind you of I, I might remind you of, of the sobering words God spoke to Ananias in Acts 9 regarding Paul. Quoting me. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. Not only that, the context of chapter 4 assures us that Paul is referring specifically to these difficult parts of his ministry over which Christians lose heart. Well, they wouldn't lose heart over the triumphs of ministry, right? Those are, those are reassuring to us. So verse 7 to verse 12 talk about being afflicted and perplexed and struck down. As hard as those afflictions are, and they are hard, they are nevertheless part of that to which God called Paul. And that makes it ministry. And that is enough to motivate Paul not to lose heart. Now hear what I'm saying, beloved. The very thing that Christians find to be their greatest source of grief and temptation to give up was for Paul his greatest source of encouragement and motivation to keep on going. God-given ministry. That part of Paul's life, according to American Christianity, well, it should have sent him like Jonah, running in the opposite direction of God's call. But instead, it motivated him to soldier on. Can you see the perspective I'm talking about? You mustn't think of the monotony and the pain and the suffering, the abuse, the persecutions, the physical and mental tax as separate from God's calling, but part of it. You have a calling. You have a ministry. It matters. And that makes it all worth it. Let me flesh out that perspective for you a bit more. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you might not be aware. You might not be aware that you, that, that you, have, that you have been called to full-time ministry. You might not be aware that you don't have to be a pastor to be called to full-time ministry. In one sense, all of us are in full-time ministry. I mean, most of you may not get paid for it, 
But that doesn't negate the fact that you're working for the Lord all the time in whatever station of life he's called you. Are you not supposed to build with precious stone, silver, and gold? Will your investment in the kingdom not be tested by God's assessing fire? Have you not been bought with a price? Do you not belong to God and to glorify him with your body? Are you not chosen by God to communicate to the world the transforming power of the gospel? Sometimes gospel living puts us in situations that are rough. Ones that we wouldn't choose to be in. And they may be embarrassing, physically exhausting, mentally demanding, even harmful. But the reason we shouldn't shrink back from them and why we don't grow weary in them is because God has called us to them for his purposes, his glory, and our good. We have this ministry. It will have a good deal of pleasantness about it, yes, and amen but it will also have its share of hardship and suffering of various kinds. The young mom who grows tired of minding hyperactive children, keeping a big house, and loving her husband when he's not lovely to her at times, needs to see that she does all of this as a divine calling. This is her ministry. In that way, she's no different than the missionary who suffers for Christ in the bush. And great is her reward. Take the Christian who works in a job that he hates and with people that hate him. Because he's a Christian. He has no other job of equal pay waiting for him in the wings that he can just quit. What does he do? Well, he works unto the Lord, gives his 100% because God has called him to display a sterling work ethic, to be good, a good testimony, and to provide for his family even in unpleasant situations. If he sees his context as ministry, he'll press on. In situations where you're tempted to lose heart and grow faint, consider them your ministry. God has called you to this. And because of that fact, Paul says, every bit of suffering is building for you an eternal weight of glory. Do you believe that? Hardly needs mentioning that Paul's ministry and ours is from God. But there is an important reason why the ESV and the NIV actually insert the phrase, by God, here in verse 1. That phrase is not in the Greek text. It's certainly implied, but it needs to be emphasized. As far as Paul was concerned, listen very carefully, it was important for the Corinthians to understand that his ministry to them, this very rigorous ministry, was sanctioned by God. They needed to know that because it was being discredited. There were many ministries in the first century that were not sanctioned by God. Many religious personalities posing as Christians. Not just Judaizers, but you've got legalists and antinomianists and mystics and Gnostics. You can read all about them in Colossians chapter 2 and 1 John and Revelation uh, chapters 1 to 3. In an epistle where Paul had to defend his apostleship as legitimate and sanctioned by God, it's important that he qualify categorically 
that God gave him this ministry. Today the situation is the same. There are plenty of ministries that are not sanctioned by God. Those that are involved in them fool themselves into thinking that they are. The ministries accommodate ease of life, offer a low-profile lifestyle, one that incurs no persecution, puts nothing on the line, won't embarrass, and, is, and it escapes confrontation. That's American Christianity. It's the character of American Christianity. It's, it's very popular. Some go so far as to think that if you're having difficulties in the Christian life, then something's wrong. Others believe in the prosperity gospel, that's the health and wealth, and that financial wealth is God's will for every Christian. Still others believe in the social gospel, which has taken a new, on a new identity today since its appearing in the turn of the 20th century. Critical race theory, social justice, intersectionality, and equity make up the new face of the social gospel, and sadly, have harmed churches in America. Others who claim to be Christians boast that they never study the Bible. I don't even know a lick of theology, but they have an intimate relationship with God. Is that that were even possible? There is no end to the inventions and innovations of the Christian life that allow the professor to live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven and has no place for suffering or hardship or trial or putting oneself out for the sake of another in the body of Christ, loving one's enemy, preaching the gospel out of season. Don't be deceived. Your ministry was given to you by God from the moment you were born again. And from that moment to the moment you go home to be with Christ, God calls you to this particular station in your life with God-given responsibilities that are clearly defined in Scripture and that God has mixed with a measure of hardship and persecution for our good. No matter how monotonous or tedious or difficult that life is, it's nevertheless a life that God has entrusted to our care to live out for his glory and the benefit of his church. The person who's been transformed by the gospel lives for Christ and for others, never for himself. He dare not take back for selfish purposes any precious time that God redeemed and entrusted to him for divine purposes. Instead, he redeems the times. He doesn't take persecution personally. He knows that his life is shaped by Scripture and that if, he, if he's hated, it's because the world hates the Lord, his Christ, and the Bible. And he knows that just as Jesus suffered and as Paul and the rest of the apostles that God called into ministry suffered, he will also uh, expect the same. I find the way that Paul and Barnabas encouraged the saints on their way back from, uh, on their way back through, I should say, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, uh, was according to Acts fourteen twenty two to tell them this: it is through many tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, would you ever think that the way to encourage saints in ministry who are suffering severe persecution is to tell them that this is supposed to happen? 
American Christianity would coddle them. Paul's way is to inform them. Well, we've said a lot. And we're winding down to the end of our time. And, of course, I have saved the best part of this perspective for last. We have argued that trials and difficulties and hardships and suffering and the like are part of our ministry. A ministry that God gave us. So let's complete the thought. This ministry that Paul received from God is an expression of just how merciful God is. Now, I love this. Please follow very closely. Paul says that this ministry that we have from God is an expression of God's mercy. Look at verse 1. We do not lose heart on the basis of the fact that we have been given this ministry by the mercy of God. Did you get that? An expression of God's mercy. Just so we're clear, Paul's day and night adrift in the Mediterranean Sea, his shipwreck beating with rods, being left for dead, and the rest of it, Paul says all of it is an expression of God's mercy to him. There's no escaping that fact. It's right there in the grammar. Huh? Why would Paul ever see these terrible events as an expression of God's mercy? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. And this is the heart of Paul's perspective on ministry. God's mercy is a wonderful concept. In terms of the gospel, it refers to God's act of withholding condemnation from us that we deserve. And to preserve his justice when he saves us, God punishes Jesus on our behalf. Grace, then, is often explained alongside mercy because it's the other side of the same coin. Grace is God's act of giving us what we are undeserving of, and that would be heaven. So God takes our hell, and he gives us heaven. Mercy, grace. How do we understand mercy in 2 Corinthians 4.1? And why would Paul ever see hardship, suffering, and persecution as a demonstration of God's mercy to him? Here's how. Paul knew that the suffering he experienced in ministry was nothing compared to the condemnation that he deserved. God spared him condemnation and instead gave him eternal life that begins on earth and is fraught with trials as well as triumphs and then dead ends into glory. And when you compare the way this chapter begins with the way it ends, we see Paul, Paul's biblical perspective in ministry in full. What we have now is infinitely better than what we deserve and what awaits us is infinitely better than what we have now. We can be sure that however Paul was mistreated, his mistreatment was infinitely better than what he actually deserved and had been saved from. Wouldn't you agree? What Paul deserved was hell. What he was getting instead was persecution from for his faith in the form of beatings, imprisonments, slanders, betrayals, and abandonments from his closest colleagues, 
Could Paul ever say that he didn't deserve to be treated that way? No, he couldn't. Why? Because he deserved infinitely more. Worse. He deserved worse. Beloved, I really think that when we are mistreated in the Christian life for our faith, we ought to step back and wonder how God and people can treat us so well compared to what we deserve. Can you understand the perspective here? When the worst is over, condemnation, anything of lesser severity is nothing. And what we have now is far better than what we deserve. And now add to that the future part. And what awaits is far better than what we have now. That means that the hardship part of our ministry, while it's infinitely better than what we deserve, pales in significance to what awaits us in heaven. The best is yet to come. So let me ask you, while the worst is over and the best is still yet to come, what is there that could possibly move you? Do you see the perspective I'm talking about? This is why Paul could say at the end of this chapter, regarding these terrible afflictions, that what he endured for the ministry were momentary light affliction, producing for him and for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comprehension. They were light and momentary compared to the eternal condemnation that he deserved. And he considered what he had far, far better but nowhere near as wonderful as what awaited him in heaven. Sadly, there is no hope for anyone to live with or to live on this level of confidence as a conqueror, a conqueror's life, a life that knows no timidity, no fear without being born again. It just will never happen. You must be born again. This is why the Bible tells the world that the most important and immediate responsibility any non-Christian has is to obey the gospel. He must recognize that the best he can produce is offensive to a holy God. Turn from that and embrace the work of Christ alone. He must come to God on that basis and then he will enjoy a life with God that will last forever. If he doesn't do that, then there is no hope. If he does, then he's assured that until he sees Jesus face to face, he will know the joy and the peace even in the midst of tragedy. And for those of us who are born again, if you want to keep yourself from losing heart, or maybe you need to regain it, regain your confidence, remember that God has given you a ministry, his ministry, which is a stroke of his mercy. Believe that what you have now is far better than what you deserve and what awaits is far better than what you have now. And with the worst over and the best yet to come, there is absolutely nothing that can move you. So press on. Father, we thank you for this time together that we could gather here in this place and rally around the truth and be instructed by the Holy Spirit from your word. We pray that this wonderful truth
transforming principle will just embed itself into our brains, that it will be a guiding force in our Christian walk, that we will come to see that we indeed have a life that belongs to you, our time, our energies, everything is for your glory and for the ministry. And wherever each of us is in his and her station in life, we pray that we would all recognize that we are called to this and that we would endeavor to press on, come what may, for your glory, for the benefit of your, lo- for your, your church and this local church, and expect great things as a result of submitting to your, your sovereign will. And Father, we pray then that we would be comforted with the great truth that someday we will enjoy the best there is. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.